quick before my computer dies again. Great. Hi. How are you? What's up? Hello. Welcome to Millennial Poet Society. Millennial Poet Society speed round while we're trying to make Emily's computer last. <laughs> Lightning round. Oh, I'm up Lightning. to 2%, so we're doing Ooh, fine. We're doing okay. We're okay. I just have to keep continually touching it. Great. To keep it awake. Same. <laughs> I have to continually touch <laughs> you to keep you awake. Uh-huh. I mean, you're not... That's not wrong. Something has to happen, you know? I guess. Who are you? Nobody, <laughs> really. Who is anybody? I'm Emily, though, is what... My given name. <laughs> I go by Emily. Some call me Emily. Some you call, me call me Danger. Star sweater. Star sweater. You're wearing a sweater with stars on it. I am. <laughs> I'm Marguerite. Thanks for asking. I'm going to call you Blue Glasses because that's what you're wearing. It works for me. Okay. Well, we're just. <clears throat> what do we some do? BGSS. We're Blue what? glasses, star sweater, reporting for duty. Oh my god. All right. That bit's over. Yep. Was it one? No. Was it worth it? Absolutely not. Um, you put that in the oven while it was still preheating. No, it was done preheating, and now it's just continuously preheating. Interesting. It does this sometimes. Emily's making turkey pot pie. Thank for you for that exciting bit of news about my life. Well, I started talking about the oven, so. Yeah. Um, did we mention that we record in our kitchen living room? <laughs> our, ki our kitchen room? Our, our, our living, living kitchen? kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> um, donate so that we don't have to. Oh, God. Um, donate. <laughs> is, that, is it already the end of the episode? Um, wow. All right. Lightning round indeed. Exactly. Uh, so this is Millennial Poet Society, where we talk about poetry, surprisingly. Surprise, surprise. Um, if this is the first time you're joining us, welcome. This welcome. is pretty much as good as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> We're just your your neighborhood friends talking about poetry. Your neighborhood friends. Making pot pie and got our fake fire going on the TV. I, I notoriously like have to have a little fire going like yeah. in the winter once it gets to be like November 1st. I just think it makes things feel so cozy and like it mentally like makes you think it's warmer than it is. Sure. And it's just a nice like calming sound to me to have like yeah. a crackling fire. Not that like I didn't grow up with a fireplace. It's not something I grew up with. Mm. We I grew up with my dad wanting a fireplace really bad. <laughs> so so you subconsciously so really like... want a fireplace <laughs> yeah. at all times. Exactly. Gotcha. Uh, no, but when it gets to be this time of year, I just always like to like to have it on if I'm not like if I'm not watching something on TV or whatever. Like I came or I came home while I was doing notes. Emily came home while I and I was working on finishing my yes. notes for the episode, and I just had like the crackling fire going and yeah, when I was cleaning yesterday. And do you wonder, you know, Marguerite's a Taurus for those of you that are interested in astrology and. She is often like, I don't get it. I don't know what that means. And like, I don't, I don't know if I believe in that crap. And to have the fireplace, the crackling fireplace, the Yule log playing in the background at any given moment of any day of any time of year is like the most Taurus thing you could possibly do. <laughs> so uh, you fit right in. Great. You're, you're wow. just a textbook example. It's, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm different. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is one of our main episodes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we do smaller episodes. We do. What are those called? They're called mini-sodes, but they're not because that's a lie. <laughs> I've been listening to my favorite murder. <laughs> I'm there. listening too. Did you listen to this week? I'm in um, the middle of it. Yeah, um, that's good. <laughs> shout out <laughs> shout out um no they are called our bonus episodes they're who's to say tuesdays is what we were doing um we finished season one a few months back and we are collecting selections for season two currently and mark will tell you about how to submit to those yes so those selections in our in our who's to say episodes there are many ones we talk about um self-published or unpublished poets Unpublished meaning you don't have like a full collection that's been published um, by a publisher other than yourself. Um, right. If you've got pieces that are published in like 
publication, like magazines and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. we don't care. Uh, like that's great. I mean, we do. We and want we're really proud stuff, of you, but that like, doesn't like that doesn't count you out for our mini episodes. So yeah. if you are unpublished or self-published, we want you to send us your work so that we can share it on our mini episodes. Uh, you can send those submissions to Millennial Poets Society at gmail.com. We know that's a long email address, so to make it easy, you can just go to our Instagram page, uh, which is mps underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, give us a like, give us a follow, and then under the bio there, uh, there should be either like a contact or an email button. Um, Emily just aggressively hitting her computer. So it, it went black. <laughs> um, so yeah, find us there. Send us an email using those buttons, or uh, find it on um, find it on Facebook, or um, you can find it right in the notes of this episode. Uh, we will have it down below. You can just click on it wherever. If you're listening on your computer, on your phone, you should just be able to click on it, and it'll open up a blank email for you to just go ahead and send us on over your things. We want them. We're excited to. Uh, be working on season two for mm -hmm. you and need all of the material. Uh, so send all of it to us, please. We love to read it right now. It's so much fun. Honestly, like I just really love reading new poets and I love getting to talk with them and mm -hmm. learn more about them and like reading their bios and stuff that they send us. Yeah. It's just, it's so much fun. And it's one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast. So yeah. I really hope you guys decide to put in all your your great ideas and your beautiful words send them to us we mm -hmm. won't publish them without your consent but you know just it's fun just do it yeah just do it just do it just, just do it and we consider a lot of things to be poetry so you know we've we've had submissions from rappers before or um songwriters and and yeah, anything really is poetry to us. So mm -hmm. we want to see it all. Yes, please. Okay, so this is the part of the episode where we talk about the poems that and the poets that we we have We've researched. Arrived. Here That's it is. Here we are. Welcome. Hi. It's a whole new part and it's a whole new world. You made it You're through the table. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Singing my way through life. It's fine. <laughs> Um, it's episode 33, it which means I go first, um, and I have a pretty cool guy to talk about today. Cool, cool. His name is William Blake. Hey. Hey, oh, good old William Blake. Good old William Blake. <laughs> I don't know. He's from London. Okay. He is, so. Well, I was going to say, like, Yorkshire or something. Isn't that kind of like a Yorkshire accent? I don't know. I was just sort of easing my way back into using any kind of accent so got it so yeah um William Blake poet painter engraver and visionary engraver yeah actually monogram my computer um engraved? that's embroidery monogram my computer oh no engraving well, also I understand monogram is just your initials yes it is you're right <laughs> Cool, cool, cool. Anyway, Great. he worked to bring about a change in both society and social order and in the minds of mankind throughout his work. Oh, mankind. He was born November 28th, 1757. That was recently. No. October. Uh, November 28th. It's actually Thanksgiving Day this year. Uh, 1757. So it, no, I know the year was a while ago. About the time of year. <laughs> oh yeah, no, November 28th. That was recently. In the grand scheme of the world, that was recently. Okay. Of the universe. Sure. Sure. Within the last 400 years, he was born. You're right. Great. Okay. Uh, so he was born, and oh. he was considered. Um, he's now considered a seminal figure in the history of poetry and visual arts of the Romantic Age. This is despite being largely unrecognizable, <laughs> unrecognized, I almost said unrecognizable, <laughs> okay, I during that. his lifetime. You, you which, virtually did. <laughs> which just makes me think like, he just would go around and be like, hi, I'm William Blake. And they'd be like, who? And just like, unrecognizable, mm -hmm, cannot tell mm -hmm. who he is. He always had those glasses with like the fake nose yeah. and mustache. <laughs> yeah. Unrecognizable. No. You never <laughs> Who is she? <laughs> um, 
Um, yeah, so he was largely unrecognized <laughs> mm-hmm. during his lifetime. Uh, but he was born in London, and he was the third of seven children. We he, know. I know, five of them lived. So that's all. Five. Well, that's. A, I feel like five time, them, back in the good. day. That's right. Um, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say five of them died. So better no, than I thought. no. <laughs> um, so he attended school only long enough to learn reading and writing. Leaving at the age of ten, he was like, "Sayonara, suckers! Look this! I got what I wanted, and now I'm gone." Um, He was otherwise educated at home by his mother, Catherine. Catherine was her name. Just remember. Great. What was her name? Catherine. So we were talking about Catherine. Catherine. His his mother's name is Catherine. He was baptized into the Catholic Church. By Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, by Catherine. (laughs) So we were talking about Catherine. His mother. And he was Catholic. And he was Catholic. And the Bible was an early and profound influence on him. It remained a source of inspiration throughout his life. Blake started engraving copies of drawings of Greek antiquities purchased for him by his father, a practice that was preferred to actual drawing for men. Within these... Yeah. For men. (laughs) For men. Great. Within these forms, Blake was first exposed to classical forms... What? That was a lot of forms. <laughs> Within the drawings and the Greek antiquities, um, Blake was first exposed to classical forms through the work of Michelangelo, Raphael, and others. Okay. All of the Teen Mutant Ninja Turtles, in fact. Okay. Um, when he was 10 years old, he was enrolled in drawing classes. <laughs> I thought we were just going to let it go. <laughs> ah! <laughs> ah! <laughs> I was just like... Yes. You were like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, Teen Mutant Ninja Turtles, 17 whenever. Oh my God. When was he born? <laughs> 1757. <laughs> um, okay. When he was 10 years old, he was enrolled in drawing classes at Parr's Drawing School in the Strand. He read avidly on subjects of his own choosing. During this period, Blake made ex- explorations into poetry, his early work displaying similarities between uh, to Beth... Ben Johnson, Edmund Spencer, and the Psalms. The Psalms. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was a psalm. It's a psalm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. According to the Poetry Foundation, Blake, quote, lived and worked in the teeming metropolis of London at a time teeming. of... Teeming. <laughs> teeming metropolis of London at a time of great social and political change that profoundly influenced, influenced his writing. Profoundly. Profoundly influenced. <laughs> profoundly influenced his writing. (laughs) In addition to being considered one of the most visionary of English poets and one of the great progenitors of English romanticism. What's a... Like... Like, um, like preeminent. Not like... Like like somebody who started... Was the... Yeah, like the father of. Mm -hmm. His visual artwork is highly regarded around the world. Did you know that? Because I didn't. Mm -mm. Never heard of him. William Blake? You never heard of William Blake? I'm serious, because he's, like, no, big yeah. time. I've heard of him. Oh, okay. I was, I'm sorry you said never heard of him, and I thought you were serious. I never, I like, didn't. ever heard of him, but, oh, like, never heard I'd of him. I never heard of him as a, an artist. No, not like a fine artist, like, like Right, like as a writer, sure. But. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So at the age of 21, Blake left an apprenticeship he had with an engraver, and he enrolled for a time in the newly formed Royal Academy. Mm. Um, booksellers employed him to engrave illustrations for publications ranging from novels such as Don Quixote to publications of Ladies Magazine. Mm. So he did a wide variety of work. In 1780, riots broke out in London, incited by the anti-Catholic preaching of Lord George Gordon and by resistance to continued war against the American colonists. Houses, churches, and prisons were burned by uncontrollable mobs, and Blake actually found himself, either by design or by, or by accident, um, at the front of the mob that burned Newgate Prison. Oh, wow. So these images of this, like, violent destruction and revolution gave Blake powerful material for some of his most famous works, 
um, Europe from 1974 and America from 19, I'm sorry, 1794 and America from 1793. Wait, these are poems uh, that he okay. is. I feel written. like I've heard of. I've heard of America for yeah, sure. Same. Um, I've heard of America, but actually, um, but actually, it's really funny because um, his poem "America" is what I think it was Allen Ginsberg who wrote the other America, mm-hmm. I think, and um, and he was a big uh, influence. influence on Allen Ginsberg and the beat poetry yeah. movement in general, which I'll talk about. Yeah. But like. Yeah, so this poem, America, is like what inspired the other America. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Maybe that's why I've heard of it. Um, Blake met his wife. Can you guess her name? Catherine. Catherine. That's right. <laughs> Blake met his wife, Catherine Boucher, probably, but it looks like Boucher. Like Belcher? <laughs> yeah, but Boucher. In 1781, when he was recovering from a relationship that had culminated in a refused marriage proposal. Mm. Poor guy. But listen to this. (laughs) He was explaining this story of heartbreak to Catherine and her family. Great. When he asked her, do you pity me? And she said, yes. And he replied, then I love you. And somehow. That's how that works. This (laughs) led to the two being married in August the following year. The following year. Yeah. So. um, One year later. (laughs) But honestly, from all accounts, their marriage was like strong, successful. Um, Catherine was illiterate when he met her, but he took the time to teach her how to read and write. Oh, wow. And even trained her as an engraver. Oh, wow. And she said that, he said that she became invaluable to his work and working with her would lift his spirits in times of misfortune. Which is like. Super cute. Yeah. But at the time of their marriage, she was illiterate, so she couldn't sign her name on their marriage certificate. Wow. And uh, in the church where they got married, it was on display for a while. I don't know if it's still there, but um, it was displayed, and it was just an X. She just signed an X. Wow. And they took it. <laughs> they were like, good, cool. Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, that was like normal, wasn't right. it? Like yeah. people who couldn't sign their name, they would just like sign an X. Right. Exactly. And X um, marks the spot. But so he taught her how to read and write taught her how to engrave and wow. she became very good at it and like helped him with his projects and like other side stuff. And That's it was so cool. Pr- it was really cool. Um, so like I said, by all accounts, a very happy marriage. Um, they didn't have any children, which was rare for the time, um, but they seemed very happy. Mm-hmm. Blake's first book of poetry was a very thin volume of poems titled Poetical Sketches, published in 1783. Poetical is a funny word. It is. I don't know that it's proper to say poetical, but I guess. I mean, maybe you say not it's anymore, poetic, you know, but yeah. Um, and that was published 1783. The poems were mostly imitations of classical models, but he put his own spin on them by speaking out against war and the tyranny of kings. It was time of revolution, you know, Ooh. the French Revolution was about to happen. Huzzah. It was a big deal. Um, the American Revolution. After All his. The revolution. Yeah. After his father died, Blake used part of the money he inherited to set up as a print seller with his friend James Parker. Um, But the business model failed, however, and left him out of money. Hmm. He was sort of a John Ralphio of sorts. Hmm. He was like, dude, 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 I got this great idea. Mm -hmm. We're going to sell my books and I'm going to be a really published, like, well-published writer. I'm going to be a really published writer. I'm going to be really famous. Everybody's going to love me. And nobody bought his books, and He's so they the failed. Worst. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went back to illustrations. Great. And after experimenting with different methods of illuminated illustration and poetry, mm-hmm. Blake designed a series of plates and poems called Songs of Innocence in mm. 1789. Uh, poems from this collection have a pleasant lyrical aspect shown in the role of the piper found in this collection, and um, the more somber prophetic nature of poetry is displayed with the character the bard. So the piper and the bard in these poems were these like two counterparts to show his feelings on poetry in general. Mm -hmm. Between 1793 and 1795, 
Blake produced the collection of illuminated works that would come to be known as minor prophecies. In Europe, which is the poem, uh, the first book of Urizen, the book of Los, Los, the Song of Los, and the book of Ahania, uh, he developed the major outlines of his universal mythology. Hmm. So in these poems, he examined the fall of man. And in this mythology, man and God were once united, but man separated himself from God and became weaker and weaker And he became as he became further divided from God. Um, so he just sort of like made up this mythology yeah. and then rolled with it and was like, mm -hmm. here's all my thoughts on everything yeah. in poet poem form right. and produced this little like minor prophecies collection. Cool. In these poems, uh, oh, I said that. Okay. Um, very little of Blake's poetry of the 1790s was known to the general public, though. Um, his reputation as an artist was mixed. And despite his lack of fame, he, like, never seemed discouraged. He was like, it's cool. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to try. Mm -hmm. keep, keep on keeping on. Great. Um, surrounded, though, by financial worries and hounded by patrons who did not appreciate his art, Um, Blake reflected on the value of visionary poetry. Mm -hmm. So he wrote Milton, which was an epic he finished in 1808. Mm -hmm. It is a poem that consistently draws attention to itself as a work of literature. Even Blake is a character in the poem. He examines the range of mental activity involved in the art of poetry, from the initial inspiration of the poet to the reception of his poem by the reader. Um, and then the epic poem Jerusalem followed a few years later. Well, he started working on the epic poem Jerusalem a few years later. And that's most likely Blake's most major achievement. Um, it is an epic poem consisting of a hundred illuminated plates, which wow. take years to make. Like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, he dated the title page 1804, but he seemed to have worked on this project until roughly 1820. So hmm. this was a big project for him, and it took him a very long time. Yeah. In the poem, he develops on that mythology he had started on yeah. um, and to explore a man's fall and redemption. The Poetry Foundation says that it's easy to get lost in the complex mythology of what Blake's talking about and forget that he's actually just describing a mental fight of, like, writer's block and, like, what it means to be a good poet and, like, yeah. how to be inspired, you know, and, and all these things. Um, Blake's last years were spent at Fountain Court off of the Strand. And on the day of his death, August 12th, 1827, he worked tirelessly at his final project, which was a series of engravings of Dante's Divine Comedy. Wow. Yeah, just like casual. Um, the day he died, he was like still working. It's insane. I must finish. I must finish, which he didn't. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> Eventually, he stopped working and turned to his Boiler. wife. This is all kind of speculation, I feel like, because, like, how would anybody know? Right. Um, but eventually it says he stopped working and turned to his wife, who was in tears by his bedside. Mm -hmm. It's just very dramatic, and I kind of right. like it. <laughs> it is said that he cried, Stay, Kate. Keep just as you are. I will draw your portrait for you. You have always been an angel to me. She's gesturing at me right now. I am. Also, his wife's name is Catherine, so I guess Kate was like a nickname for that, but... Yeah. Anyway. Having completed this portrait, which no longer exists, so who even knows if it actually did? Yeah. He laid down his tools and began to sing hymns and verses. He died peacefully. Great. So, you know, it's kind of like a nice picture. Sure. <laughs> So after his death, his wife, Catherine, claimed she was regularly visited by Blake's spirit, mm. casual. Mm -hmm. When she died, all of Blake's works were taken into the possession of longtime friend Frederick Tatham. Now, however, Frederick joined a conservative church some years later, and he was moved by the spirit of the Holy Ghost to burn all of the manuscripts that he deemed heretical. Yeah, I know. Bro. I know. What? Like, it's not your fucking call, man. <laughs> like, Dude. The exact number of destroyed manuscript is, manuscripts is unknown, but <laughs> shortly after, shortly before his death, 
Blake had told a friend that he had written, quote, 20 tragedies as long as Macbeth, none wow. of which survived. Well, we so need 20 more sucks. Macbeths. Really. <laughs> yeah, not that we need 20 more Macbeths, but that would have been cool, you know? Yeah. Um, at the time of Blake's death, he had sold fewer than 30 copies of his songs, of his collection, Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Wow. So that's it. Just like less than 30 copies. He died a nobody. Mm -hmm. His friend fucking burned his life's work. <laughs> and his wife was like, he will be remembered. And nope, it didn't happen. Oh my God. I mean, eventually. I mean, did. yeah. <laughs> but so much of what we know today about William Blake can be credited to Alexander Gilchrist and his biography, Life of William Blake, written in the 1860s. And it wasn't until the 20th century when Blake's work was fully appreciated and his influence increased. Um, he had enormous influences on the beat poets of the 1950s, like I was saying, yeah. and the counterculture in the 1960s. He was frequently cited by poets like Allen Ginsberg, songwriter Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, Van Morrison, and English writer Aldous Huxley. So the central plot line, even, of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, mm -hmm. which is now like a hit Amazon show or whatever, or a movie, um, is rooted in the world of Blake's poem, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Huh. So he's very, cool. very much an influence on like, like basically we've been borrowing from Blake for hundreds of years yeah. and he's generally considered like one of the greatest poets that ever lived during mm -hmm. the English romantic movement and he only sold 30 copies in his lifetime. Yeah. So I feel like the moral of the story is just like if you're second guessing it, write it down uh -huh. and like try yeah, it out. William Blake. Because <laughs> it could be crap but it could be something that a future generation is going to really resonate with mm -hmm. and you could be inspiring somebody that's not even born yet. Yeah. So just write it down, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Just do it yeah. and then send it to us. Yeah. And then we'll be the ones that can help you yeah. to inspire the future generations because podcasts will live forever. Podcasts never die. <laughs> so that's William Blake. It's like half of the information about him on oh, yeah. Wikipedia. So like, you know, there's so much more about him that I just couldn't even get to. Right. Um, I was so shocked though by like how much information was there was about his engraving career. Yeah. Like he did more of that than he did as a poet. Mm -hmm. But his words were, you know, taken for granted until than the 20th century, like I said, but like, yeah. it's just, it's insane. Like he mm -hmm. was, he worked hard and fast and like, yeah, did so much. It was insane. Right. So the poem I want to read you, he had a lot of very long poems. So I tried to pick a shorter one. Um, this it's called earth's answer. Earth raised up her head from the darkness, dread and drear. Her light fled, stony dread, and her locks covered with gray despair. Prisoned on watery shores, starry jealousy does keep my den, cold and hoar, weeping o'er, I hear the father of the ancient men. Selfish father of men, cruel, jealous, selfish fear can delight, chained in night, the virgins of youth and mourning bear. Does spring hide its joy when buds and blossoms grow? Does the sower sow by night, or the plowman in darkness plow? Break this heavy chain that does freeze my bones around selfish, vain, eternal bane, that free love with bondage bound. Hmm. I think it's nice. Yeah. I think it reminds me of spring mm -hmm. and the changing seasons. And I like the title, Earth's Answer, because yeah. it's like, I don't know, it just, it reminds me of the cyclical, um, like, it reminds me of, of how nature is cyclical and how mm -hmm. it, how it, I almost said the cyclical nature of nature, but you know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. it is. And it, it reminds me of, of uh, 
how everything has its time and you know each stanza is sort of like a different season so I don't know I really liked it I thought it was beautiful and I'm sure there's a huge in-depth analysis Analysis. of it somewhere but um that's just what I got out of it so very nice that's William Blake yeah that's all I got for you very cool cool we'll we'll take a quick break and be right back Mm -hmm. (sighs) okay oh my god so I am also talking about um, a cool dude this week, um, and I'm cool continuing dude. chilling cool in dude. a hot tub. <laughs> Five feet apart because they're not gay. Okay, yeah, that was that like Instagram thing, right? Some mm-hmm. guy, yeah. Um, so I'm continuing my series on Native American poetry for the Brave. month of November. And this week, we are going to be talking about Sherman Alexi. Mm, I know that name. Yeah, I, I recognize the name, too. And I actually think I had looked at him previously because um, the poem that I'm going to read today, I've definitely read before and I've come across it when I've been, like, looking into different poets to talk about. And for whatever reason, at the time, I didn't uh, do him, but now I am. Cool. Because I was waiting to use him for this series. That's right. Um, and I'm also just going to say in and amongst this uh, bio, I'm going to use the terminology both Native American and Indian because both were used where I was collecting information from. And he also refers to himself as Indian um, in his like titles and in his works and everything like that. So just putting that out there. Cool. Uh, so he was born October 7th, 1966 in Spokane, Washington. Uh, he grew up on a Spokane... It's Spokane, right? It Not is Spokane. Spokane. Yeah, Spokane Indian Reservation, west of Spokane. Um, How many times can we say Spokane in this episode? Spokane, 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 Spokane. Okay, that was fun. <laughs> great. So Say it one more time. I'm going to. Okay, great. <laughs> his father was a member of the Coeur d'Alene tribe, and his mother was of Colville, Choctaw, Spokane, and <laughs> European American ancestry. Spokane. You had to wait for that one. <laughs> um... He was born with hydrocephalus, a condition that occurs when there's an abnormally large amount of uh, cerebral fluid in the nasal cavity, Mm -hmm. and uh, he had to have brain surgery when he was just six months old, and was at a high risk of death or mental disabilities if he survived. The surgery, though, was successful, and he suffered no mental damage or um, any other, but he he didn't suffer mental damage, but he did have other side effects. I was about to say he didn't have any. He, He definitely did. Um... Uh, which we will get to, but uh, his parents were alcoholics, um, and though his mother achieved sobriety. Uh, his we father, though, often left the house on drinking binges for days at a time. He described his life on the reservation, at the reservation school as challenging because he was constantly teased by other kids and endured abuse. Um, he described his torture from the white nuns who taught there. He was teased because his head was larger than usual due to suffering from hydrocephalus as mm-hmm. an infant. He also suffered from seizures and bedwetting until the age of seven and had to take strong drugs to control them. Also side effects of the um, uh, hydrocephalus. Yeah. And like the surgery and everything that he had to go through. Oh God, that's awful. Yeah. So because of his health problem, health problems, he was excluded from many of the activities that were rites of passage for young Indian males. And because of the isolation of all, uh, that all of this caused, he spent much of his time reading. Mm-hmm. In eighth grade, he decided to attend the Reardon High School, which was 20 miles outside of the reservation. His, uh, and he became very like academically successful. Wow. Um, his academic achievements secured his admission to Spokane's Jesuit Gonzaga University in 1985, where he continued to be academically successful, but he began to abuse alcohol, alcohol himself. Mm. He transferred to Washington State University in 1987 and began writing poetry and short fiction. His work was published uh, for the first time in Hanging Loose, or at least I think the first, like, big publishing of it. I don't know if it was previously published in, like, a smaller paper or anything like that in school. But it was published in Hanging Loose magazine in 1990, which uh, inspired him to quit drinking, and he's remained sober ever since. Wow. Yeah. Good job. That's amazing. Yeah. And amazing at, like, such a young age that he saw that in himself Mm -hmm. and, and realized that he needed to make that change. That's so difficult, I'm sure. Um... So, uh, in his short story and poetry collections, Alexi, uh, illuminates the despair, poetry, and, uh, yeah, poetry is the word I was trying to use there, 
uh, despair, poetry, and alcoholism that often shape the lives of Native Americans living on reservations. It is a very big problem mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that um, people have to deal with while they're living on reservations. It's also a huge stereotype, which I think feeds into mm-hmm. a lot of the stigma. Right. Uh, his poems, novels, and short stories evoke sadness and, in- and in- indignation, yet also leave readers with a sense of respect and compassion for characters who are seemingly hopeless, who are in seemingly hopeless, hopeless situations. Hopeless. Hopeless, hopeless situations. situations. Uh, <laughs> Alexei's protagonists struggle to survive the constant battering of their minds, bodies, and spirits by white American society and their own self-hatred and sense of powerlessness. In The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven, which is the name of um, one of his short story collections, I believe, not one of his poetry collections, um, but in that, he asserts that Native Americans, quote, have have a uh, have have a way, I guess, have a of surviving. Um, yep. He asserts that Native <laughs> Americans have a way of surviving, but it's almost like Indians can easily survive the big stuff. Mass murder, loss of language and land rights. Mm. It's the small things that hurt the most. The white waitress who wouldn't take an order, Tonto, the Washington Redskins. Mm-hmm. A key characteristic of his writing is irony. His dark humor often buoyed by the impeccable sense of um, timing. His poetry collections, the uh, poetry collection, The Business of Fancy Dancing and First Indian on the Moon, published in 1993. Expose the quote fraudulent illusions that tempt us all in Americans uh, in America today, um, which was said by Andrea Best Baxter in Western American Literature. Leslie Ullman commented in the Kenyan Review, we know that we sure do. Uh, on his um, so she was talking about his first published poetry collection, The Business of Fancy Dancing. That Alexi uh, weaves a curiously soft blended tapestry of humor, humility, pride, and metaphysical provocation out of their hard realities, the tin shack lives, the alcohol dreams, the bad luck and burlesque disasters, and the self-destructive courage of his characters. Mm. Wow. Um, So a lot of people just talk about how he has this way of sort of blending the... Um, darker sides of life with sort of this like dark humor and, right. and trying to make it sort of approachable in a way to everyone, like in a way that's yeah. like more digestible for people. Right. And also that then like gets them to actually like understand what's happening. Um, Alexi commented on his progression from poems to short stories to novels as occurring quote, pretty naturally because my poems are stories. It felt natural for me to evolve that larger, um, that larger for what okay to evolve that not to say it wasn't difficult for me at first though I had this thing about going beyond one page typewritten I'd get to the bottom of a page and freak out because I wouldn't know what to do next oh man I freaking feel that that's so real when I I can't turn the page in my journal if I'm writing Mm -hmm. like if I do, I'm like, oh, what was my thought? Or like, oh, God, it's too long. I'm rambling. Yeah. It's, it's, mm. I totally feel it. Um, but he says that, uh, that um, the stories would keep getting bigger and bigger, and they began to demand more space than a poem could provide. Mm-hmm. Um, he was named uh, the Ganta's Best Young American Novelist. Um, he was named to the Ganta's Best of young American novelists list in 1966. So we're sort of getting into when he's moving, like I'm just talking about from more poems to short stories right, to novels. Right. Um, editor Ian Jack said the judges um, of this list had quote, liked Alexi's work because it had something to tell us. Native American life, life on the reservation is a pretty under described experience. Mm-hmm. He added that quote, fiction, if it's any good, should persuade you of individual and inner lives. Alexi's book wasn't sanctimonious or pious, uh, yeah, wasn't sanctimonious or pious or a piece of political pleading. It introduced you to characters, her, characters who were Native American and made them as complex and odd as everyone else. Right. Um, Alexi wrote for a divided audience. Um, Abigail Davis writes in Bloomsbury Review uh, that this first novel by Sherman Alexi comes as close to helping non-Native Americans understand the modern Indian experience as any attempt in current literature. The reader closes the book feeling troubled, hurt, 
hopeful, profoundly thoughtful, and somewhat exhausted, as if the quest of the characters had been a personal experience. Yeah, that's which is really, really cool. <laughs> yeah, which is really all you can ask of someone who's like, that's their goal or what they set out to do is to sort of show people that it's a shared experience or, or at least make their experience easily more understandable to them and expose them to that. Mm-hmm. Um, as he progressed in his prose, he moved away from exposing a uniquely uh, Native American world to Anglo audiences. And instead, as Ken Foster said in his review of the toughest Indian in the world, um, uh, this was a review for the San Francisco Chronicle. He said the collection, uh, which is, so this is a collection of short stories. Okay. Uh, and he says the collection retraces Alexi's familiar territory of native white conflict without feeling the need to instruct his readers in the details of contemporary American Indian culture. And why should he? The lives he portrays right. are so finely detailed. So it's like he's giving you all this background and showing you the depth of these people's lives. Like you don't have to sort of set pit one against the other. It's like he's just showing right. a truly detailed human life. Exactly. Um, and um, that's like when people say, you know, like when some people complain, like when everybody's noticing finally that mm-hmm. like there's not enough roles for people of color. Right. And then somebody comes back and they're like, well, there are roles. Like, there are people, there are movies mm-hmm. that star people of color all the time or whatever. And then you're like, no, but, like, not in the same way as it is with, like, a right. white person that's in the mm-hmm. lead or something. Because their stories can just be about them. Right. And, like, just being a human. Mm-hmm. It, and it And almost every time you have something to do with a person of color, it's like, that's their big thing is that they're a person of color and not just a person, you know? Right, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of, sorry, I thought you needed to talk. I had to burp. <laughs> speaking of film and whatnot, he has also been active in film, uh, helping create the first all Indian movie, Smoke, oh. uh, Smoke Signals in 1998. No way! Yeah. Uh, it I was, know Smoke Signals. Yeah, it was a major studio release, um, and he uh, wrote and um, which was uh, written and directed a written and directed adaptation of his own book, The Business of Fancy Dancing, which was published um, or that was not published after whatever. Um, Get out of here! So yeah, um, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And so this film, uh, Smoke Signals, was produced, directed, and active. By a Native American talent, uh, by Native American, um, tent, talent, like, so it was a 100%, (laughs) like, entire, I don't know. Native Um, American tent? No. Nope. Talent? Talent. There we go. Yeah. Uh, autocorrect. Um, so it was entirely produced, directed, and acted by Native American, um, talent and artists. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it took top honors at the Sundance Film Festival. Mm Mm-hmm. He hoped that the release of the movie would open doors for Indian filmmakers, pointing to African-American director uh, Spike Lee as a role model, saying Spike didn't necessarily get films made as much as he inspired filmmakers to believe in themselves. That's what's going to happen here. These 13-year-old Indian kids who've gone, who've been going crazy with their camcorders will finally see the possibilities. Aww. Um, and um, so that's just a little bit about his uh, sort of film. I didn't... I couldn't go too much into his, like, film and novels and, like, all that stuff just because there's a lot of information. Mm -hmm. Um, But so uh, his poetry expresses many of the same themes um, in as, like, all of his other chosen genres, but it's arguably even more self-conscious and ironic than his prose. Okay. With his poetry, there's a mix of narrative, formal innovation, and gorgeous lyricism. Uh, his poetry collections often contain extended prose pieces, as in um, The Business of Fancy Dancing, um, First Man on the Moon, published in 1993, and One Stick Song, published in 2000. Um, his collection Face, published in 2009, which is um, where the poem that I'm reading today comes from, uh, it includes poems of written poems written in forms like Sestina and Villanelle, which we've talked about we've before. We've talked about Villanelle, yeah. Um, as well uh, as well meta textual effects, like ex- as well as meta textual effects, like extended footnotes and frame breaking moments of self awareness. Mm. Stephen Ross says in the Oxonian Review that this effect is lighthearted without being light, colloquial without being cliche, and serious without being sententious. Cool. 
Yeah. Um, and just to give like a little bit of a timeline, um, cause I didn't necessarily mention too many dates or anything. Um, his first two collections were published in 1992. Um, I would steal horses and the business of fancy dancing. Um, and Alexi refers to his writing as fancy dancing, which, um, is referencing a flashy, colorful style of competitive powwow dancing, whereas older traditional forms of Indian dance may be ceremonial and kept private among tribal members. The fancy dance style was created by Native American veterans from World War II as a form of public entertainment, which is just sort of interesting. Yeah. Um... Alexi has been the recipient of numerous awards and grants, including the 2009 Mason Award, the 2008 Stranger Genius Award, a Pushcart Prize, the Penn Balamid Award, a National Endowment for the Arts uh, Poetry Fellowship, and numerary, numerous honorary, numerary, <laughs> numerous honorary degrees. Uh, he's a highly, uh, he is a highly sought-after public speaker. A highly hot-after. Mm-hmm. And has been a guest on a on nationally broadcast radio and TV programs like the McNeil Lehrer Report, now with Bill Mowers, the Colbert Report. <laughs> <laughs> I know that one. Um, and he lives in Seattle, Washington with his wife and two sons. Um, and then just a list of some of his collections, um, The Business of Fancy Dancing, Stories and Poems, Old Shirts and New Skins, 1993, First Indian on the Moon, 1993, Seven Morning Songs for the Cedar Flute I Have Yet to Learn to Play, 1994, uh, Water Flowing Home, 1996, The Summer of Black Win Widows, 1996, The Man Who Loves Salmon, 1998, One Stick Song, 2000, and Face in 2009. Wow. Yeah. So that's Sherman. Um, and so the poem that I'm going to read today is called Grief Calls Us to the Things of This World. And like I said, this is from his collection, um, Face. And it starts with like a quote, um, at the beginning. So I'm going to read that first and then I'll go into the poem. Okay. The morning air. Sorry, that was okay. It's me too. <laughs> the morning air is all awash with angels. Richard Wilbur, Love Calls Us to the Things of This World. And then so the poem is called Grief Calls Us to the Things of This World. The eyes open to a blue telephone in the bathroom of this five-star hotel. I wonder whom should I call? A plumber, proctologist, urologist, or priest? Who is blessed among us and most deserves the first call? I choose my father because he's astounded by bathroom telephones. <laughs> I dial home. My mother answers. Hey, Ma. I say, can I talk to Papa? She gasps. And then I remember that my father has been dead for nearly a year. Shit, Mom, I say. I forgot he's dead. I I'm sorry. How did I forget? It's okay, she says. I made him a cup of instant coffee this morning and left it on the table, like I have for, what, 27 years? And I didn't realize my mistake until this afternoon. My mother laughs at the angels who wait for us to pause during the most ordinary of days and sing our praise to forgetfulness before they swap out our souls with their cold wings, before they slap at our souls with their cold wings. Those angels burden and unbalance us. Those fucking angels ride us piggyback. Those angels forever falling snare us and haul us, pray and praying, into dust. That's gorgeous isn't it it's such a slice of life it's such right. a moving small moment mm -hmm. I loved that and yeah I just it's really great because it, I yeah exactly I feel like number one it does it's such a relatable poem I feel like right. like anyone could have gone through something like this where they're grieving someone and um and it's like, it's been a year and you just like, but there's these old habits that you fall right. into and you just like forget for a second. Yeah. And then like, how the fuck did I forget? And it's like, no, I forgot too. Like it happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. And I just really like the, the grief calls us to the things of this world. And it's just like to the simple little things of like, oh, I'm going to call dad. He'd think this phone is so funny. Right. Or like his mom just like made him a cup of coffee and it was like shit yeah he's not here 
Um, so yeah, I just thought it was a really beautiful poem and such an interesting image of these angels uh, that slap our souls with their cold wings. It's really, it's really a very moving picture when you think about, when you look at the language he's using and, and how it's mundane and it's, you know, it's, it's every day. It's not, he's not heightening it to something unrealistic or right. anything. Um, and the way he sort of moves through those, almost all of the phases of grief mm -hmm. within the poem yeah. to show like, um, being like, Oh shit. Ah, like, like, yeah. You know? And then mm -hmm. being like, upset about it being right, like I fucking right. forgot because these angels like yeah and or and then just to accepting it and and I don't know it, just sort of sitting in that moment of like mm -hmm. oh right it's okay mm -hmm. this happens yeah and having your mom to go through that with is mm -hmm. just like yeah it's very moving yeah so I really enjoyed that his words are beautiful I'm gonna have to look him up mm-hmm yeah there's another one that I was thinking about doing that's called The Powwow at the End of the World. And it's really good. So, yeah, you should just check out Sherman Alexi. Sherman Alexi. Thank yes. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, that is all from us this week. And as always, we want to give a special shout out to Zach Adkins for our intro and outro music. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And um, if you could, just in the bottom of this podcast at the show notes, you will see a link that will take you to a donation page where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month. Dollar menu. You could get us out of this kitchen room, this living kitchen. <laughs> you know what? That's less than. It's less than a subscription to Disney+. Plus. It is. You could get Did Disney+, Plus, and you could get us for 99 cents a month craziness and it would still be less than spotify so that's pretty cool mm -hmm. it's a big deal guys <laughs> and a little goes a long way and we really appreciate it yeah. um you know the drill and then as always rate and review and subscribe to our <laughs> subscribe to my channel <laughs> um and, but seriously like those those ratings go such a long way on especially on apple Podcasts. exactly but um pretty much everywhere you listen just mm -hmm. giving us a quick little five stars if you want yeah. or whatever you choose let us um, know you like what we're doing honestly any word of mouth is still word of mouth so <laughs> uh we'll take it you know tell us you hate us we don't care but i hope you like us i don't want you to say you hate me <laughs> i mean i'd I At least they're talking about us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's publicity. That's showbiz, honey. That's showbiz, kid. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, thank you guys for listening, and we'll be back next week with more poets. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.